if you listened to my last episode, you know that working offshore in Lebanon is new. The Tungsten Explorer is over there, and there's even a woman on board. It's only been in the last couple years that women in Lebanon can work in these male-dominated industries such as oil and gas. I found out all about this recently when speaking with a professor from the Notre Dame University in Lebanon, Professor Eugene Sensenig. I'm pleased to bring on Professor Eugene to the show to speak with you about these changes in the oil and gas industry in Lebanon and what he is doing to provide opportunity. This is the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Cedeno, a mariner and founder of Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. Earlier this year, I met Professor Eugene Sensenig from the Notre Dame University in Lebanon. He reached out and was very passionate about empowering his students for equality. Through lessons and interactive webinars, Professor Eugene had a lot of ideas on how he wanted to provide various opportunities for women to know that they had role models and jobs in the oil and gas industry. He shared with me that many of the female students were intrigued by one story that we have on our website, Rosie the Driller. She's an assistant driller in the North Sea, and we wrote about her last year. Her story was very impactful because up until 2018, women were not allowed to work in oil and gas according to the Lebanese Code of Labor because of the Petroleum Transparency Act that was passed in 2018, women can now work in the extraction industries such as oil and gas, and this act guaranteed equal opportunities and diversity in the workplace. To learn more about what's going on in Lebanon, I've asked Professor Eugene to come on the show to hear how he's promoting STEM within his classroom. Welcome, Eugene, to the Women Offshore podcast. I'm really glad to be with you and to join you today from Biblos, Lebanon. Yeah, thanks so much. So please start out by sharing a little bit about your background and what you do. Well, as you can probably hear, I'm originally from the U.S. I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I moved to Germany and then to Austria and lived there for 25 years, after which I moved to Beirut. And now I live in Biblos, which is a very old city north of Beirut. The last 20 years, I've been a professor at Notre Dame University, which is not to be confused with the one in Indiana. My fields of expertise are migration, gender studies, and something that I worked on many years ago in Austria and never thought it would come back, but it has, which is high-altitude metal mining. Now, high-altitude metal mining and offshore oil and gas exploration are not directly related, but it gave me a taste, and I worked on a book on this topic, so it gave me a taste of the topic 25 years ago, and now I'm picking up on that. So I'm really working a lot now with various NGOs. Some of them I'm sure you're familiar with, like Publish What You Pay and the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, here in Lebanon. And we just started drilling the beginning of March off the shore with three companies, Total, Eni, and Novotech. The first drilling came up empty, but if you have any idea about how mining in and oil exploration work, that's no reason to give up. So we're looking forward to the second drilling, which will be probably in the summer. Of course, COVID-19 and the oil prices put a damper on that, but 
by the summer, things should start up again. Good, good. It's good to hear the progress in oil and gas in Lebanon. Are there any female leaders in oil and gas over there? Well, interestingly enough, I was commissioned to do a research project by the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, which is a London-based donor in December on gender, youth, and oil and natural gas exploration and production. And one of the things that we found, that one of the things I know, because I've, I've been working in this field now since 2013 as an educator, mainly, and as an activist, is that there are a lot of women in the NGO sector or the civil society sector. Obviously, we just started drilling in March, so there isn't any oil sector in that sense. There were two large refineries in the 1950s and 60s, and they were closed during the Civil War in Lebanon with an employment level of around 3,000. They were all men. This is back in the, up until the 70s. But there is no oil or mining sector to speak of except for quarrying and sand. So there are no, there's no mining, thus there's no women in mining oil exploration. But in the NGO sector, it's weirdly enough, it's almost exclusively women. And when I was doing the research, I asked one of the activists who I've known now for almost 10 years, can you explain why almost everybody who's active in the oil and gas sector in Lebanon is female? And she said, that's typical because as long as there's no money involved, the guys are not interested. And it's more of a caring issue. It's about, you know, fighting the resource curse, involving the population and decision making, which are typical, quote unquote, female skills. So it's a caring industry as long as there's no actual drilling involved. Just wait until they start drilling and you'll see how they're going to try to push the women out. That's already starting. But all the NGOs, the staff of all the NGOs is predominantly women and the leadership of all the NGOs, with very few exceptions, is female. And so in that sector, in the CSO sector or civil society sector, there's a lot of women. There is one woman who was on the tungsten, which is the drilling ship that started in March, we didn't know about this, but one of my students in one of my classes at my university, Notre Dame University, told me that his friend is working as an engineer on the ship. And I said, well, can you invite him? I want to do a podcast. Can you invite him to be part of that? And he said, because he knew my interest in, in gender equality, he said, and by the way, there's one woman. He said one girl. He's one girl on the ship. And I go, oh, jokingly, as we all know, don't women bring bad luck, both in mining and on ships? And he, he knew that was a joke, of course. And he said, Could I, I'll invite her. And she came to this podcast and it was a great success. So to answer your question, there's not many women in oil and gas exploration because we just got started. However, we do intend to use all our capacity within Publish What You Pay, within the EITI and the multi-stakeholder group to promote women in the industry. Yeah, when we first connected, you had told me about the 2018 Petroleum Transparency Act. This guarantees equal opportunities and diversity in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Has the environment changed for women since this act was started? Well, let me go back a little bit to 1946. As you might know, in heavy industry, women are often seen as a liability because this work is too dangerous, too dirty for women. So as in the case of the military, it's always been a desire on the part of women to be able to do the real work, the frontline work. But men, of course, tend to protect women and children from exposure to dangerous and 
unhealthy conditions. So the laws are well intended. And in 1946, right after World War II, a law was passed banning women. The wording was banning women, youth, and children from working in a, li a long list of industries, including mining and work with heavy machinery. That's 46. Because there's no significant mining to speak of, except for quarrying and sand, that didn't really play a role. However, it's on the books. And that was one of the discoveries we made when we did the research project last winter, December. And the law of 2018 was the product of a lot of pressure that was put on the government by civil society to have a transparency law, because as you probably know, the resource curse, especially in developing countries, can be horrible. If we look at Nigeria, for example, or even many of the Gulf states, it makes a already corrupt society much worse. So this is a huge success to have the Transparency Act, and it's a huge success to have these two clauses, paragraph 13 of the Act, in there. Now, as I mentioned previously, because there isn't any employment to speak of except office work to date, this had not become an issue until the beginning of this year. And the tendency will be, and we've already discovered this, will be to keep women onshore, one, and also outside of the entire extractive industry sector, with the exception of some office work, perhaps. So basically what we're doing right now is using the success we had in civil society to get the law passed, to make people aware of these clauses in the law, and to make people join our movement in the extractive industry sec sector to make give women access to these jobs. And the larger picture is if we can use this as leverage, if, if women can get jobs offshore, and there has been one woman who was on the ship, and we, and we met her, as you know, we can then leverage this for the other sectors of heavy industry where women are seen as also being a liability, and largely for the entire sector where we can use the oil sector to enhance the position of all women and girls in the job market in general. Yeah, that's great. That's that's fantastic. Meeting Sarah through you. Thanks for the introduction, the the first lady to work offshore and and your area. She's fantastic and so brave. I've enjoyed speaking with her the last few weeks and and getting to know her and, and why she went offshore, some of the experiences she had and and I can't wait to see where her career goes as well as hopefully several more women who make it offshore in the next few years. Yeah, we're glad to have a Lebanese. There's Lebanese all over the world. I wouldn't say she's the first Lebanese who's working offshore, Lebanese woman, but she's the first Lebanese woman working offshore in Lebanon. We're proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. So you have a publication coming out. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, as I mentioned, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy commissioned us. We have a, a research center called the Gender Communications and Global Mobility, Gender Communications and Global Mobility Studies Unit at Notre Dame University. And Rubel Hello and I have worked on this for three months. And we were going to launch it in March. And you know what happened in March. So the lockdown prevented that. It was supposed to be launched in the library of the Lebanese Parliament. So the moment we get back to quote unquote normal and the library of the parliament building is reopened, we will launch it to the general public. So the British NGO is also in interested in the, the parliament and the parliamentary committees 
getting involved in promoting women and youth in this sector. The project itself was twofold. One was to study the nature of the industry, which of course, as I mentioned, is relatively young, and to study the nature of the players. Most of your, your audience will be familiar with Total Eni and Novotech, so I won't have to explain who they are. Especially Total and Eni have been very cooperative in promoting these issues. The Lebanese government, it's interesting because after the war in 2006, there was a war between Lebanon and Israel in 2006. After that, the Norwegians, the Norwegian government came in and the Oil for Progress program to promote oil exploration in Lebanon. And in 2010, oil and gas deposits, primarily natural gas deposits, were discovered as throughout the East, eastern Mediterranean. But there was a series of governmental crises in the country. So between 2010 and 2018, not much happened. So it gave us a full eight years as civil society, which is not only NGOs, but also the universities and the media, to get up to speed. By the time the oil exploration, well, first the bidding process began, the civil society plays were actually ahead of the government. And the this is something that's actually never happened before. We know this from Publish What You Pay and other international organizations, is that we have never seen a country, a newcomer, where the NGOs and civil society in general know more about oil and natural gas than the government does. Now, of course, the oil companies know a lot too, but we used those eight years to get ahead of the government, the Lebanese Petroleum Administration, when they got into the business, they came actually to us because we had the expertise. And so that's the second prong of this study is to show how the players, the civil society players in oil and natural gas, but others, for example, women's organizations, industry in other sectors related to upstream or downstream oil and gas processing, how they are dealing with the issues of gender and youth. And what we can say is that the civil society players are very active, as one would expect, in the areas of prohibiting discrimination and harassment based on gender. And that's a no-brainer because everybody's doing that these days. But the larger picture, for example, work-life balance, also for men, or diversity management, where you bring in issues like ethnicity or race, disabilities, sexual orientation, and gender together, these issues are not nearly as well developed. And what we also tested is, do the donors actually promote these issues with their partners in Lebanon? And there we found that it didn't happen much. So the result is that actually the civil society sector is doing a good job as an employer, but not as good of a job as in promoting gender equality. That was the first result. The second result were the recommendations. And here, as you might know, the big argument by employers is we'd like to hire women but we can't find anybody who's qualified. So one of the things that we are recommending is to promote STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, starting in the schools with little girls and working up through high school and university and also the vocational training centers to get women and girls ready for jobs in oil exploration and processing, but also in the upstream and downstream industries. So do you have female students in your classroom who want to work offshore? What do you tell them? Well, I've been sort of preaching the gospel, if you will, of good governance in the oil and gas sector for several years now. And because there was no exploration, 
my students would go, oh yeah, here's this professor from the West and he's telling us all these wonderful ideas about good governance and rule of law, but this is all just a lot of hot air, a lot of talk. But once the bidding process started two years ago, and then once the drilling started at the beginning of this year, their ears really picked up. Now, most universities now have degrees in petroleum engineering. So there are some students, and I teach general education courses as well, and one of them is ethics and leadership. And the event that we did last week was organized by those students, along with our student society from Publish What You Pay at our university. So the one area that a lot of the engineering students, and there are a lot of females, are interested in is working in exploration and in, in, in the, on the industrial side, upstream and downstream. But there aren't that many jobs. I mean, this is a small country with a small coast, so there's not going to be that many positions open. More opportunities will be available for the related industries. For example, as many people would say today, it's a pity to use oil for fuel when it can be used for industrial processing, plastics, etc. So that's also an area where a lot of students are interested in. And also, because I'm a political science and law professor, we're interested in the governance issues and rule of law. So whether it's the resource curse and preventing the resource curse, whether it's issues like ecology, whether it's issues of involving local communities, because as you probably know, throughout the developing world, often the areas where the reserves are located, whether it's onshore or offshore, those areas are often the poorest. They don't get much out of the industry. So involving local communities and generally seeing oil and natural gas as a lever, as a way of improving the situation in Lebanon in general, because as most people know, Lebanon gets in the news a lot for all the wrong reasons. And it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I think that the petroleum sector could be the one last chance for Lebanon to save itself. And here, I think the, issue, the, the focus should be on itself because any country that's going to improve its game and deal with a, a lot of corruption and mismanagement has to do it itself. It can't wait for some guiding hand from abroad. And if Lebanon can manage its own oil and gas sector properly, that would then have a ripple effect on the entire economy and the entire society in general. Yeah. What are your students, what do they say when you tell them it's maybe more of a national security or it's about supporting the nation? Well, one of the things that always comes up, as you know, Lebanon is located in a pretty bad neighborhood and there's an ongoing struggle with Israel. There's an ongoing struggle from the other side with Syria then where you're sort of lodged between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. So a lot of them will see this from a geopolitical perspective. And I try to take it away from that perspective. I said, look, offshore oil and gas is primarily about good governance within the country. And a lot of Lebanese, Lebanon has one of the highest emigration rates in the world and has had a high emigration rate. And if you look around you anywhere in Texas or in, in New Hampshire or throughout Latin America, almost anywhere in the world, you're going to find a lot of Lebanese. Because Lebanese have been leaving the, their country in droves for 150 years. So young people are very, very disappointed. And what's going on right now is making them even more disappointed. Also, basically any hope they might have had is now disappearing. So 
I try to tell them, look, guys, you do want to save your country. I've been living here for 20 years. My wife and my daughter are Lebanese. I want to save this country, too. It's also my country now. We have been given almost a gift from God in the form of oil and natural gas to be used not only as a source of revenue, but to be used as a leverage to reform the country. And the big difference between oil and gas is, I mean, we've seen this recently with, you know, the terrorist organizations. You can put oil in the back of a pickup and go sell it to a terrorist organization relatively easily. You can't do that with natural gas. You either have to liquefy it or you need pipelines. It's a long-term investment. It requires a lot of discipline as far as the technological side is concerned. So that also has a good disciplinary effect on the economy and the country. Natural gas, we have a lot more gas than we do oil. From even from the purely technical perspective, is a good thing. So to answer your question, when the students give up hope, I say, look, use this. You have been given a chance in your lifetime to turn things around. So let's work on this together. And I think in your lifetime, you will see the country turn around. Yeah, to me, it sounds like you are empowering them with knowledge and skills to go out and make their own lives better and their communities better. Looking at the women specifically in your classes, what has been the biggest lesson learned as a professor in empowering women? Well, Lebanon, this region, the Levant, which is Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Israel, partially Egypt and Jordan, has a very old, uh, well over a hundred year old tradition of women's rights activism. So this is nothing new. And they can look back on a very vibrant women's rights movement in the arts and sciences, in technology, in politics to an extent. So I'm not you know, bringing in anything new to them, but I'm trying to make them aware of their tr- traditions. And I would say that because we're relatively speaking, Lebanon is a very free country. There's no direct censorship of the media. Of course, comparatively speaking, the arts are free, comparatively speaking. So women's movements can, can speak openly and bring up even hot topics openly. So when I work with my students, I say, look, we have some big issues. One of them is access to careers. The difference between pay for women and men is bigger than in most parts of the world. Very few women in politics. This is one of the big weaknesses in Lebanon. So the improvements are not going to come by some sort of largesse. The improvements are going to come by organizing, by developing NGOs. And we have a very vibrant environmental sector, also in the arts, culture. So I try to link the two areas, what's been going on in the area of women's rights and the career perspective through oil and natural gas. One of the things that I've noticed with the women's organizations, because we did a mapping of all the women's organizations and wanted to know what they have to say about careers for women in heavy industry and specifically in oil and natural gas, there wasn't that much of an awareness that this is an issue. And I think that this is something, perhaps a weakness on the part of the women's movement that workplace equality for me is one of the core issues for gender equality. Yeah, and that is very surprising to hear. I know that Women Offshore, we talk a lot about 
it needs to be more than just the women's organizations involved. Men have to step up for equality. And without men, it may not ever be possible to reach true equality. So with that said, what more can men do to empower women? And I'd also like to add that when I spoke to your class last week, I was very impressed by the questions I received from the men. And it seems like you have a great group of male students who are looking to do more for the women in their communities. Well, it's obviously a generational thing. With each generation, things do get a little bit better. And because Lebanon is a very open country, they and because of the internet now, they're following up on trends throughout the world. So the level of prejudice and ignorance is no longer the way it used to be. When I was their age, things were a lot different. I would say the first thing that all men need to do is to see that the traditional gender roles the way that we've been given them by our culture in the past and by our families are something that have been created, that have been, that are man-made or human-made. And if they're, that, if they're constructed, we can deconstruct them and we can recreate them to fit our own needs. And that means, especially in, in heavy industry, that it's not only women who have to change to fit into, for example, working offshore, it's also men. And there's been a lot of research done in the last years on having the workplace change and men change in the industry so that there's equality for both men and women, not only in oil and natural gas and mining in general, but all forms of heavy industry and in the workplace in general. I think the second issue, and this is a topic that I've been working on for many decades, actually, is, a, is something called work-life balance. If women are going to get a career, men have to get a life which means men have to see themselves not only as workers, but also as fathers and also as men. Normally, we have people and women. So we have gender studies, that means women's studies, and people who do men's studies are somehow considered to be weird. We have to define ourselves as human beings, both women and men, but we also have to define ourselves as men now, speaking as a man, as men. And when we do something it's not sort of generic, normal, the way men do it, and then women can fit in. The workplace has to be equal for both. And first and foremost, and I like this from your website, that you highlight the caregiving roles for women and how they have to you know, juggle caring for their families with their careers. I'd like to see the same thing for a couple of men. When we say working mother, it sounds normal. Oh, it's a mother who's also trying to get a career. When I use the term working father, it's not the word working that sounds weird. It's father. And we don't define ourselves as men as fathers. That's just something for the wife, right? So I think that when we look for a, a future where there's a real chance for women to get a career, men have to get a life. And what we've seen from studies, which have been going on now for several decades, is that it's not only a, a win-win situation for the husband and the wife or the parents, it's also a win-win situation for the employers and for the customers. Everybody benefits. So it's the culture that's actually blocking an advancement which will benefit everybody. I'm so excited for you and everything that is building up in Lebanon and hope to see more women working offshore. I have one more question for sure. you. So 
to wrap this up, do you have any last pieces of advice for a woman or a man? Maybe gender doesn't matter here. Just someone who wants to go into oil and gas and pursue their career dreams. Well, personally, I wanted to be an engineer, but I don't like math. So I had to give up on that career choice. But I would say that this is a, although a lot of people are saying that the petroleum industry is on its way out, that renewables are replacing it. I would say that especially oil, which is an industrial product, is going to be needed a lot in the future. It's a future industry. I'm just seeing this from the pictures and talking to people like you. It's, it's an exciting career. What I would say is that to improve people's chances, we have to start off with kids. My daughter, when she was little, she used to go through the recycling containers and build stuff when she was five or six. So a lot of girls have these interests as well. Start off, start the kids off early and look at the, at the career in oil and natural gas as a career for the future, because even if renewables replace petroleum as an energy source, oil and gas will be needed for other things in the future. And it's becoming more and more ecological. So I think it's becoming more and more green. And the issues that we're dealing with at the moment with the price drop and the conflicts we're seeing between some of the producers, this will blow over. So I see it as a, as a bright future. And I would encourage both women and men to get involved in this sector. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much, Professor. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Ali. <laughs> Eugene, not Professor. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore Podcast. This has been episode 29. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop. Make a donation or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll talk to you soon.